I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Jeff Angle devoted civil servant with a photographic memory, finds a pen and tries to return it to its rightful owner. But somehow he follows the man into another world. And three spacemen were warned before they landed on a strange planet. There were no cities, no signs of life. What could possibly go wrong? That's next on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, featuring at least one Lost Sci-Fi short story from the 1940s, 50s, and 60s in every episode. Thank you for supporting our podcast. Every story you hear and many more are available on our website, lostsci-fi.com. Every short sci-fi story under an hour is available every day for only 97 cents. And today we have something special for you that is only available on our website. Lost Sci-Fi Books 1 through 40 is available now for only $14.97, which is a great price. But as a Lost Sci-Fi podcast listener, you can get it today for a limited time for only $9.88. That's 40 Lost Sci-Fi short stories, more than 20 and a half hours for only $9.88. Go to LostSciFi.com and when you go to purchase books 1 through 40, enter the coupon code PODCAST to get this special price for Lost Sci-Fi podcast listeners. It was early April 1968 and a little 8-year-old boy in Sioux City, Iowa was driving his parents crazy begging them to take him to the Orpheum Theater downtown to see a movie unlike anything he had ever seen before. More than 30 minutes after the movie starts, somebody or something is in a field. Somebody is riding horses and shooting rifles. But clever editing doesn't show their faces, so you don't know who or what. 
When the star of the movie is on the ground trying to avoid capture, 32 minutes and 11 seconds after this soon-to-be multi-billion dollar movie franchise debuts, that's when you see them. Apes. Planet of the Apes starring Charlton Heston is what got me hooked on sci-fi. After he's captured, Heston doesn't speak for almost 30 minutes. When he finally does speak, he says, Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! I love that line. The apes were shocked to hear a man speaking. I was, as you probably already figured out, that little boy. And that's 54 years ago. But I remember that scene and that movie like it was yesterday. And I probably watched Planet of the Apes at least 20 times, probably more. I've seen all nine of the movies in the franchise spanning over 49 years in the theater. Planet of the Apes is by far my favorite sci-fi franchise. What's yours? Send an email and let us know. Scott at LostSciFi.com The Lost Sci-Fi Podcast has been around for only three weeks and eight episodes, but we've already received several five-star ratings, so thank you. Our very first five-star rating and review was Norman H. 52, who said, If you love the classic sci-fi stories from the 40s to 60s, you'll find them here. Also, each episode has an introduction detailing author and publication information. The narrator has an excellent character range and an obvious love for classic sci-fi. Thanks, Norman H. 52. If you haven't done it already, we would be honored if you go to Apple Podcasts and leave an honest five-star rating and a positive review. We've got two short sci-fi stories for you on the podcast today. And just like last time when we had two science fiction stories on the podcast, we know almost nothing about the authors. Both wrote two short science fiction stories published in the 1950s that we know of. And that's all we can find out about either author. Somehow, Jeff Engel followed the stranger into another world among people who hated all aliens. And, of course, he was now one himself. From Imagination Stories of Science and Fantasy, in September 1953, The Fugitives, written by Malcolm B. Moorhart, Jr. Jeff Engel studied the feverish crowd hurrying through the subway turnstiles. As he checked each passing face against a card index mine, he smiled to himself. Even when off-duty, the habit persisted. There was always the chance he'd spot a face that would fit, one that would close another active file in Missing Persons Bureau. A mousy little guy slipped through a turnstile and bumped into a fat woman shopper. Engel glanced at the thin, apologetic face, and then at a briefcase bearing the faded initials C.G. As a train rumbled in and the noise of the commuters rose, something glinted at Engel's feet. He bent down, curious. It was a cheap fountain pen inscribed with the same initials. He caught a glimpse of the stranger on the crowded subway stairs. Wait a minute, mister, he yelled. When C.G. didn't turn, Engel hesitated 
then pounded up the stairs into dazzling sunlight. He squinted around at people and then over low bushes into the city park where he saw the little fellow walking briskly. Annoyed, Engel trotted down a shady walk, then down a quiet lane and finally reached out to tap his shoulder. C.G. vanished in thin air. Engel slid to a halt and rubbed his eyes. Fearfully, he explored this queer illusion, his hands pawing nothingness. There was a roar like a thousand subway trains, and something invisible and powerful hurled him sprawling. He lay stunned as the noise died away, and then sat up to nurse a bruised head. Someone grabbed his arms, jerked him rudely to his feet, and spun him around. A tall, gangling cop glared down at him. You been drinking? What? Engel stammered. Confused, he looked more closely at this man, who wore a gray metallic uniform, a glittering badge, and an oddly shaped holster. I wasn't drinking. Something pushed me. The cop smirked as he picked up the fountain pen and dusted it off with his gloves. This yours? He asked. Yes. Uh, why, no, Engel sputtered. It belongs to a guy I was chasing. The cop's thick eyebrows lifted. He lost it, and I was trying to return it, Engel explained. But he disappeared right in front of me. Well, that's a new one, the cop said with a cynical smile. He seized Engel's arm and dragged him down the walk. I'm running you in as a drunk and robbery suspect, bud. But I didn't do anything protested Engel. The cop scowled. We'll see. If you're innocent, you'll get out of C.D. in a few minutes. C.D.? Engel echoed. C.D. C.G. C.D.? The initials hopped wildly about in his mind. At a soft whistling sound, he glanced up above a high hedge, and his eyes widened. Gleaming white towers rose up to fade into misty blue, and around them silently darted silvery bubbles. Faintly traced with jointed concentric lines, the sky seemed to curve over him like a lofty and enormous spider web. As he was pulled across a wide street, tall, hollow-cheeked people stopped to stare at him, and he stared back in wonder. Who are they? Engel faltered. The cop said nothing and led him through the low entrance of a tower. As they went down a glowing hall, Engel touched the back of his still aching head. Was his fall in the park causing these hallucinations? Possibly. But before the fall, hadn't some mysterious unseen force thrown him into this crazy world? Then he had to find it again and somehow escape back to reality. They entered a large room where lines of gaunt, solemn people stood gravely before grill windows. The enemy is listening. A sign on a wall warned him as a loudspeaker blared out a garbled message. The cop shoved him into a line. Finally, the man ahead of them fidgeted up to an ugly, hatchet-faced woman who frowned impatiently. Yes, she snapped. My wife deserted me, the scarecrow of a man complained. I want to fill out this form, drop it in slot nine, she rapped out. Next, a drunken robbery suspect, the cop said. Here's the evidence. Brightening, Hatchet Face snatched up the fountain pen and whisked out a blue card. Misdemeanor and felony, 
she breathed sharply. I'll take the details. Engel clung to the edge of the window counter as the interrogation began. Yes, he told them. He actually believed something invisible had knocked him down after swallowing up the stranger. No, he hadn't robbed the stranger. He wasn't confessing anything. Yes, he was an honest citizen with no previous criminal offenses. After more probing questions and vicious jabs at the form, she handed it to the cop, who dropped it in a nearby wall slot. They waited for a verdict. In a moment, the cop turned to Hatchet Face, who whispered with him excitedly. Flushed and triumphant, he steered Engel out into the hall. Alien detection wants you, he growled, with uneasy respect. They got into an elevator and shot swiftly upward. As they stepped into a lavish reception room filled with sickeningly sweet perfume, a scrawny, over-rouged girl shut a magazine and jumped to a switchboard. Then a door opened, and a short, puffy man with cold fish eyes bounced up to them. Waving the cop away, he gripped Engel's hand. Ah, Mr. Engel, he said, smiling. I'm Commissioner Marston. Sorry about the mix-up, but we didn't realize you were after C.G. Come in, please. Bewildered, Engel followed him into an office and looked through spacious windows down at the spires of a city he had never known. Beside a desk sat a wizened old man whose yellowed skin, drawn taut over his broad skull, gave him a shriveled, cadaverous aspect. He tapped a blue card on a thumbnail, as his luminous eyes followed Engel suspiciously. Dr. Weave, my chief alienologist, Marston said. Sit down, Engel. Engel grasped the arms of his chair as Dr. Weave scrutinized the card in silence. Jeffrey Engel, he read aloud in a high, petulant voice. Missing Persons Bureau, eh? Hmm, reminiscent of the 20th century. Is that what you call your detective agency? Reminiscent of? Engel pressed shaky fingers to his throbbing head. If he told them he was from out of the past, how would they react? Yes, he lied. I found a fountain pen. You lone wolves have extraordinary hunches to compensate for a lack of police techniques, Dr. Weave said, with a dry chuckle. But one needs protection when tracking aliens. Tracking aliens, Engel said, mystified. Marston laughed, leaned over his desk, and twirled a fountain pen in pudgy fingers. Take it easy. You're not suspect in this case. But the report says you found this pen, and in attempting to return it to its owner, you were struck by some invisible force. Marston glanced at Dr. Weave, who nodded. Then his voice grew hard. Did this C.G. aim anything at you before you were hit? No, he didn't, Engel said, and touched his head nervously. Headache? Dr. Weave asked. No, it's nothing, Engel countered. When I got up, the man was gone. You mean the alien was gone, Dr. Weave contradicted him. Engel's throat went dry, and he stared at them. An alien, shouted Marston. Don't you understand? Dr. Weave smiled thinly. Mr. Engel's curious to learn the latest about them, and would draw us out in this childish way. I assure you we despise them far more than the millions who only read about them in their daily telescripts. 
Since the Flying Saucer Crash in 68, we've been very much aware of their close surveillance of this world. The doctor's face clouded as he gazed at the city. The filthy blue spawn of Centauri sent us exceedingly clever spies. Before invading our cities, they must seek out our military installations and plant explosives at key points. Their assassins must be ready to strike. Dr. Weave gently wrung bony hands, and Marston leaned forward, his pale jowls quivering angrily. To safeguard public welfare, this city branch of alien detection must find and exterminate aliens. So far, we can boast of a perfect record, thanks to the new detection screen. Aliens? Engel winced, recalling the mournful little stranger. I can't believe that he... That he's a humanoid? Marston spat out the word as if it were a lump of vileness in his throat. C.G.'s a sneaking saboteur who conceals his ugly blue hide under a layer of false skin. But he's been detected. He's detected? Engel gasped. Dr. Weave inclined his vulture-like head quizzically. For an intelligent man, Mr. Engel, you seem rather poorly informed. He reached to a cabinet, and across a cathode ray screen trembled a narrow ribbon of light. As you know, he said, every act of an organism is preceded by an attitude, and that attitude takes the form of electromagnetic brain waves. The detection screen is quite simple. Sensitive electronic devices under the city dome pick up, amplify, and transmit brain waves to the central control here. Deviations from the social norm wave are promptly investigated. He ran a gnarled finger along the ribbon of light. Note the low rhythmic pulsations of the norm wave. A happy citizen at a social task somewhere in the city. He adjusted a dial and on the screen flashed a spasmodically twitching band. A variation of antisocial type 3, a citizen planning murder. Criminal detection has a police detail observing him, and before he can strike, they'll take him in custody. Now, C.G., the pseudo-man we're having shadowed, a jagged white band leaped in a wild dance. Even cerebral abnormalities don't register this violently the doctor said. The electrical impulses of his artificial brain are powerful. The detectors easily penetrate his feeble brain shield. He thinks he moves unnoticed on his evil mission, but look at his tremendous pent-up hatred and fear. Engel stiffened, his palms moist with sweat. C.G. was somewhere in this city of the future. Of course, he was feeling terrified. But these witch hunters were mistaking that terror for something else. He choked at a sudden thought. Why hadn't they discovered his own fear yet? Was his head injury somehow protecting him from their sensitive machines? Dr. Weave was regarding him stonily. Ingenious, Engel blurted out. Marston placed an automatic on his desk and beside it a box of shells. Yes, ingenious, he said, grinning. But luckily for me, these gadgets can't do everything. Trapping the alien is next, and that's my department. Show him the tracer room, doctor. 
Nervously trailing Dr. Weave, Angle went to a steel door and peered through a window. For a moment, it seemed as if he were high above the twinkling lights of a city at night, until he made out a dark, sunken room and skeletal figures with earphones clamped to their long heads. They bent over a flat surface illuminated with bright grid lines and sprinkled over with a myriad glowing dots. Gaunt, shadowy faces were fixed on a pip of light. They place him on the east side of Baxter Avenue, between 43rd and 44th Streets, Dr. Weave explained. He rubbed a lean jaw, frowning. But how the detectors failed to pick up his presence before he reached the Civic Center baffles us. Seems as if he just popped up there. I'm ready for the kill, gentlemen, crowed Marston, slapping the holster strapped to his side. You look pretty impressed, Engel. Yes, yes I am, Engel managed to say. With the doctor close behind, he followed Marston apprehensively down a corridor to a thick convex window. Marston slid it back and stepped into what resembled a bowl-shaped cockpit, a confusing maze of dials and instruments under a hemisphere of glass. Motioning Engel to a seat, he turned to the dashboard, and the same spot of light which Engel had seen in the tracer room flashed on a screen. He jabbed a button twice and picked up a microphone. Marston to Captain Schaefer. We're coming down. Yes, sir. The aliens turned back, a strained voice replied. He's now walking south on Baxter. Might be on to us. He's acting jumpy. You sound jumpy yourself, Schaefer, Marston snapped. Tell your men to hold their fire this time. All right, I have him on up to beam. Marston spun a wheel sharply, and they were falling. Engel braced himself as a white glistening tower swung away to their left, and the geometric depths of the city loomed up. He saw the doctor take a gun from a compartment, check it, and stand up wavering. His face was a mask of suppressed hate. We'll dispatch him quickly, he hissed. Engel squirmed. To prevent a ruthless murder, he'd have to not only outwit these men, but countless police besides. What was worse, with his headache almost gone, his own uncontrollable waves of fear might expose him. He's running, Marston said with a nod at the screen. As the globe shot down past white towers, a spotlight on the glass roof flashed red, and a shrill siren stung Engel's ears. Ahead of them, a big globe fled out of their way, its passengers looking back at them, frightened. Black dots on the street scurried to the towers. I see him, Dr. Weave screeched. Below them, a man was running past a gray wall of huddled people. He looked at them, dropped a briefcase, and sprinted into the deserted street. Marston chuckled into the mic. We have him, Schaefer. Not putting up much of a fight, is he? No, sir. Marston glided the globe a few yards above and slightly behind his quarry. As Engel stared down at the man's flapping coat and thin, blonde hair, he clenched his fists. It was C.G. The siren moaned to a stop, and in the sudden silence that filled the globe, he could hear weary footsteps and anguished breathing. Heavy-lidded eyes narrowed at Engel. Recognize him? Engel's mouth opened, and his throat tightened. He closed his eyes and nodded. Halt, alien, 
Marston's voice boomed over a loudspeaker. CG whirled, and they saw a soiled, rumpled suit and a trembling small face. A tear spilled down one cheek. Who are you? He cried out. What do you want? Marston put the muzzle of his automatic through a gun port and fired. C.G. screamed and fell. Then, in bright, dusty sunlight, he rolled on one side, groaning, and clutched his arm where a dark stain spread slowly down his sleeve. You disappoint us, alien, Marston rasped. Where's your espionage training? Where's the cunning to test our wits? Soft, pitiful sobs answered Marston, who barked, Get up and run for your life! C.G. got up and limped away, and Dr. Weave turned in surprise. What are you waiting for? Why don't you finish him? Marston grinned. He's headed for the park, so I'll finish him there. I'd like some old-style hunting. Are you taking leave of your senses? exclaimed Dr. Weave. What about the weapon he used on Angle? Without this armor glass, you're risking your life. If he has a weapon, why doesn't he use it? Marston fumed. It's probably in the briefcase he dropped. He bellowed into the mic. Clear the park. Numbly, Engel watched C.G. stumble past police riflemen at the end of the street and crawl into dense shrubbery. The globe zoomed ahead, then poised motionless over treetops as Marston searched for his prey. Watch for him, Marston whispered huskily. But Engel watched the screen in horror. A telltale circle of light, its rim overlapping that of C.G.'s, burned steadily brighter. An alarm bell rang on the instrument panel. Dr. Weave raised a claw-like hand to a switch, then eyed Engel queerly. Something wrong, he said. Stomach queasy? His eyes fell on the screen. Another alien! Dr. Weave's thin lips parted, and his fingers fumbled at the safety catch of his gun. Engel hurled him aside and grabbed at the wheel. The globe keeled crazily. The trees rushed up at them. With a dull crash, the glass shattered, and struggling out of Marston's flabby arms, Engel kicked open the door and dropped to earth. He scrambled to his feet and crashed through high bushes, ducking as a lance of flame charred branches overhead. There's two of them! Marston's choked voice thundered and reverberated against distant towers. Engel paused in a dark glade to hear a police whistle shrill and a dry crackling grow louder behind him. Stealthily, he crept toward sunlight. With a shock, he saw C.G. sitting in the open, exposed and dejected, his head bowed in pain. Engel dashed over to him, hoisted him on his shoulders, and staggered over thick grass to a gravel walk. Then the ground beneath him quaked. The hoarse cries of the hunters faded. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Gently, he lowered CG to a park bench, and an old man nodding in the warm sunshine raised bleary, astonished eyes. Engel turned to see a nurse pushing a baby carriage and the old, familiar skyline of the city smiling down on them. He shook with relief. Like an enraptured music lover, he listened to the faint roar of traffic. Don't let them kill me, C.G. cried. My nose with the D.T.'s, the old man muttered and stomped off. They're gone, all gone, Engel shouted. The little fellow groaned, pressing his wound. You help me. Your world need not fear us. Engel spoke to him comfortingly. Hold on, buddy. I'll get a doctor. He pushed his way through a gathering crowd to a telephone booth. As he stepped inside, he saw C.G. limp quickly to the subway stairs. By the time he had hurried back, the little fellow was gone. Puzzled, Engel reached for a hand railing to steady himself. He had lived a nightmare filled with obsessed men who dreaded blue-skinned aliens from a distant world. He touched something sticky and realized the bleeding C.G. must have clung to the railing as he descended. Then he suddenly hoped he was mistaken. The dark blotch on his fingers could be wet paint. It had to be. It was blue. The Fugitives Written by Malcolm B. Morehart, Jr. You will find many of our lost sci-fi audiobooks on many other websites, Audible, the Google Play Store, and audiobooks.com, to name a few, at double or even quadruple the price. You will always find the lowest price at lostsci-fi.com. Go to lostsci-fi.com and get your sci-fi fix for less. Our second science fiction short story today on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast is a strange tale of spacemen landing on a strange, seemingly uninhabited planet. Murph, Forsyth, and Jameson heard the alien voice warn them, and to each it sounded familiar. A sweetheart, a son, a hated enemy... From Imagination Stories of Science and Fantasy, in January 1954, Leave Earthmen or Die, written by John Massey Davis. In a dwindling spiral, they circled the planet, and Murph's cold blue eyes studied the radar screen. Things looked good, no sign of cities, social denizens, or humanoids. He was scribbling notes on his desk when the all-wave above him started crackling. He watched the green line sweep back and forth along the dial, finally centering on the wavelength which was broadcasting. As it focused, the speaker sputtered in. In accordance with interstellar code, it sounded like a recording. We repeat, landings and colonizing efforts have been previously attempted upon this planet. 
They are not welcome and have not been successful. Change course and seek other areas. This warning is being broadcast upon wavelengths available to you and in language translatable by you in accordance with interstellar code. Murphy switched it off and looked at his crew of two. Well, Forsyth grinned at him. The hell with them! We've heard that from every race in the solar system, one way or another. I say we land. Jameson shrugged. Put her down anywhere. Makes no difference to me. His scarred lips tightened. Okay. Murph switched the set back on. The same record was playing, monotonously. Load up with combat equipment, boys. We're going in. The deadly silver needle tightened the spiral course around the planet, and above Murph, the speaker crackled again and went dead. Guess they got tired of playing that record, he muttered. Another crackling, and the mechanism blared again. We see you intend disregarding our warning. In accordance with interstellar code, it is only fair to warn you. It clicked off abruptly as Murph jabbed at the switch. No use listening to this outworld nonsense. He'd heard it all before and lived through it. Where's the rest of the fleet? He threw the question out generally. Nine hours behind, Jameson said. We blast in, they follow us. The three men were silent as they scanned the radar screen. They whined above a landmass, and Murph juggled the controls, and the ship swooped upward, then settled slowly, riding on the jets. While they waited for the ground around them to cool, the men climbed into combat gear. The radar scanned the military hemisphere available, and Murph casually flipped the radio switch again. Have disregarded our warning, the voice said insistently. In accordance with the interstellar code, we cannot now be further responsible. It croaked into silence as Murph slammed the switch closed again. Nuts, he said, buckling a belt around his waist. Yeah, said Jameson. The hell with them, whoever they are. Well, said Forsyth, he was the navigator. Now, I'm not so sure. Get dressed. Murph was in command, and he showed it. We are going out. There was an oddity about the voice, Murph thought, as he dressed. The voice reminded him of his sweetheart Citra back in Philly on Earth. Husky, throaty, and with the soft, vibrant purr of a happy kitten. It reminded Forsyth of his son's tones during the family farewell for this expedition. A twinge of concern tautened his body as he remembered. One never knew when, or if, crews return from these grim expansion campaigns of humanity. Jameson had another impression. He remembered his days as a professional fighter and that last rough brawl when he hadn't quite made champion. It still rankled. The voice was that of his opponent in the seventh round, just when Jameson's knees started to buckle. The sly calculated insults in the clinches intended to make him lose his head. They had accomplished their purpose. He had charged in slugging when he should have hung on or run backward until his wind returned. From then on, he became a has-been, working steadily downward, until the manpower needs of humanity had offered an opportunity to pick another career. His scarred lips, remembering, were a tight line, and his eyes cold and uncompromising. They'd finished dressing, 
Murph flipped on the radio again, grinning in contempt. The voice still vibrated through the ether. That you blast off immediately, or assume responsibility for the consequences. Interstellar Code states that invaded peoples are justified in using any tactics. It clicked off. Murph had been annoyed by the resemblance to Citra's voice. Perhaps he was homesick. Jameson's lips vanished into a white line, and Forsyth looked around, rabid-eyed with astonishment, expecting to see his son emerge from the piles of supplies and equipment. Self-conscious, none of them said anything. Okay, said Murph. Out we go. The precision door swung open quietly, and the three descended to the still-smoking ground. Each set up his rapid-fire electro-gun, covering the entrance, and then they sat back, waiting. Nothing happened, and Murph broke the tense silence. Turn on the radio, he looked at Forsyth. We can hear it from here. I'll man both guns. Forsyth grunted and vanished into the ship. Murph heard the crackle as equipment warmed up and listened to the voice of Citra. Oddly enough, Jameson tensed as he heard the voice of the present champion, and Forsyth nearly cried as his son's tones came through the metallic speaker. But all the voices said the same thing. Subject to unprincipled attack to resist invasion of our homeland. This is the last time this warning will be broadcast. The receiver clicked, then dropped into the monotonous hum of a radio on an unused but still alert wavelength. Forsyth returned, and the three men sat, each back of an electro-gun, alert eyes scanning the alien landscape. From over a slight rise a mile off, a figure approached the ship. Murph blinked, doubting his senses, confused. Then his roar broke the silence of the strange world. Citra! Just one word, but that's all he could do. She looked as she had when he'd left on this expedition, when they had said goodbye, sparkling with sequins in her dressing room, undulating with feathers in the right places. She walked toward him with the feline grace he'd learned to love. Citra! he shouted again. Astonished, he deserted his position behind the gun and started running across the plain. Gracefully, daintily, encountering difficulties because of her spiked heels on the rough terrain, she smiled bravely and hurried toward him. Forsyth saw the approaching figure, too. He tensed with disbelief and surprise, and then his voice rose excitedly. Jimmy! Jimmy! What was his boy doing here? Reason faded as he watched his nine-year-old son stumbling toward the ship. He unfastened his harness and slipped from behind the gun, his boy on an alien planet, confronting unknown dangers. He must, must get him back to the ship and the little ring of certainty behind the guns. Forsyth started across the level space, grateful that the towering hulk of Murph had recognized his boy and would, on this unknown world, help bring the kid back to comparative safety. In six hours now, the fleet would be here. The boy could be sent home on one of the capital ships. Behind him, Jameson watched the two figures running away. His face froze into granite. Rage and resentment surged within him. 
Across the plain, he saw the man who had stolen, yes, stolen the championship from him. The fighter loped toward him casually, sneering and confident. Jameson felt a surge, like an electric shock across his shoulders. His teeth ground together, and he could hear their roaring within his ears. Deliberately, he moved from behind his gun, started at a fighter's dog trot toward his opponent. It occurred to him that Murph and Forsyth would beat him there. He was glad they were willing to help, but for the sake of his own integrity, he considered this his fight. Jameson ran swiftly then. He passed Forsyth and Murph, determined to be the first to reach the one man he hated. He sprinted eagerly, sucking the strange air chemicals of this world into his lungs. He was short of breath. Behind him, he heard the heavy thudding of Murph plunging and plowing toward him, and in addition, the light but rapid steps of Forsyth. But now, he didn't care. He was confronting his opponent. Dropping into a crouch, Jameson moved in, feet wide, tense. There would be no mistake, no error this time. His fist lashed out and his opponent fell on the strange and powdery dust of a strange world millions of miles from their first fight. The man started struggling up and again, flat-footed, tense, fists like crunching sledgehammers, Jameson dove at him. And then it happened. Murph hit Jameson from the side. Raw and choking with rage, Murph clubbed, groped, kicked, fouled, until the ex-fighter fell in the pale and strange dust. Murph's voice was hoarse and shaking. Hit my woman, will you? He screamed in rage. Jameson tried to rally. But each time he moved, Murph's fist slammed against his face and head. There was a final crash as the back of his head struck against the rocks on the ground. Jameson lay in the dust on an alien planet, and from behind his right ear, gray and reddish matter oozed. He didn't move. Murph stood up. He looked again at Citra. He was choked and tired, standing there. And as he grasped for breath, Forsyth ran by him, ran up to her. Angrily, he watched. Forsyth running up to his woman. What was wrong with these men? Murph saw Forsyth put his arms around Citra and say, meaninglessly to Murph, Jimmy! Jimmy! Again, a red rage filled Murph. He dove forward, smashed into Forsyth and the navigator reeled backwards. As he fell back, his feet tangled in the scrubby vegetation of the planet. He reached toward his belt and his electro gun jerked free from the holster. He saw the bull shape of Murph over him, an enraged beast, and as he fell, the twin electrode shot out an energy stream. Fear and hatred tensed his nerves, but despite the emotion, he set the reins right. The sparks arced together just in front of the great bulk of Murph. There was a crackling and the smell of burning flesh. Then a surprised look upon Murph's face. The surprise turned to rage, and the last thing Forsyth saw was Murph falling down on him. His clothes and his chest burned away until the ribs showed, animal rage welling from his lips.
A figure stood fifty feet away and watched this drama. Murph, blood coughing from his mouth and nose, the great muscles of his chest nothing but crisp burned meat, reached for Forsyth, picked him up, holding him over his head as an ape would a man, and slammed him again and again to the ground. The final time Murph tried to lift Forsyth, his strength gave out. He dropped Forsyth's limp form, coughed in a final paroxysm, and fell beside Forsyth and Jameson. The figure which stood fifty feet away turned and walked leisurely back over the rise. Now, it was not a fighter, and it was not Jimmy, and it was not Citra. It was a denizen of the planet, and it looked like no human. Shortly thereafter, the all-wave radio in the deadly, powerful, silvery needle, standing serenely on the strange world, blared again. In accordance with interstellar code, we have asked that we not be invaded, and are warning you that according to Article 19, Section 3, fleets which invade a peaceful people become subject to unprincipled attack, even to the use of psychological weapons. Five hours away, the main fleet streaked toward the planet. The Admiral looked at the tape reports from the scout ship and at transcripts of the recorded warning. Nuts, he said. We go in. He felt an odd, intuitive twinge. The voice was so much like his mother's, and she hadn't been well when he'd last seen her. Beside him, the radio man busily, tersely sent out landing instructions. He felt irritable. The voice had sounded just like Peggy, that no-good, cheating... He shrugged. Just imagination. In a diminishing spiral, the fleet swung around the planet while the Admiral scanned the screen for a free landing site. Leave Earthmen or Die Written by John Massey Davis Did you know that most of the vintage sci-fi short stories we narrate have never been available for you to listen to until now. And every lost sci-fi short story is on sale every day for only 97 cents at lostsci-fi.com. Next week, moonshiners in the hills of Kentucky face an out-of-this-world foe. That's next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.